of hands. Who recognizes the guy? <laughs> I just want to check the demographic, Steve. Come on, buddy. <laughs> well, bless God. Hey, stand if you're willing and able this morning as we sing praises to our King of Kings. Amen. We were made. 
My family has been coming here for the past year, 
And the song we just sang, talking about how um, God's blood runs through our veins. We are his child. I know I'm not the only one here who maybe doesn't have the best childhood experience where you were told that you have to perform to be loved, right? And I know that people here have had experiences where um, people have judged them or thought things about them. And as Steve preached last week, we can't let those experiences define us. And so as we sing this next song, there's a line in it that says, I am who you say I am. We are who God says we are, not who, you know, these unloving people in our lives who judge us and make assumptions about us. We are God's and he gave us that gift. I don't have to, you know, come to church every Sunday. I mean, you should, but like, I don't have to perform (laughs) for God to love me. He just does. And the power that that can be in our lives to overcome the fear that just holds us down. I've struggled with fear my whole life. And just in the last decade, I've really come to realize that God is really in control. I am his. And that's all that really matters at the end of the day. So let's sing this next song and really just claim this for your life, over yourself, over every situation. Am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me oh, his love for me. Oh, his love for me. 
bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, this victory that we enjoy and celebrate in Jesus Christ, it has changed everything. Because of your goodness and kindness toward us, we ascribe to you honor and praise and glory and majesty. You are the mighty God. You're the God whose holiness demanded that sin be paid for. You are the God who made a way to pay for that sin. You are the God who offers this gift of salvation to all who believe. Heavenly Father, we, we are so grateful today for the goodness and kindness that you show us. Father, like my sister shared, we just rejoice that we don't have to earn this favor day in and day out. We don't have to merit it from you. We don't have to uh, squeeze it from you, draw it from you, uh, manipulate or coerce you to love us. You've accepted us. You've loved us in Christ chosen us and adopted us as your sons and daughters. Lord, I pray that the reality of these blessings, these precious truths would make their home in our hearts. That they wouldn't be Bible doctrines that seem distant or remote. They wouldn't seem truths, seem to be truths that apply to somebody else who's seemingly super spiritual that we would understand as you speak these promises, you speak them to all your children. I pray that we would have this settled confidence that you are for us. Lord God, may those truths just protect our hearts and govern our lives. God, we're so thankful that we can gather here today. We, we ask that you would continue to speak to hearts this morning that your word would go forth and that your spirit would take what is said take the scriptures here and speak Lord. and it's in Jesus name we pray amen you may be seated well, as we shared at the outset uh, we um, will start a, a new series next week studying the book of Jeremiah I would invite you to um, to begin diving into that that um, powerful, though sometimes difficult uh, to understand, uh, book this week. Um, we're putting together a little study guide that will hopefully uh, encourage you as we walk through uh, this book throughout the summer together. And so this morning, uh, I just had something else on my mind that I wanted to share with you. Um, and uh, it's from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. And we're just going to look at uh, the first two verses, and, and especially uh, one, one phrase in these verses. Um, in uh, seminary classes I've been taking, we had a, a question posed to us for our final exam paper that we had to write, and then we kind of had to defend verbally. And uh, this is the question. Over the past year, the global pandemic and political polarization have deeply affected both the church and the world. How should the people of God 
respond to this state of affairs theologically? As I pondered that question, uh, I thought a little bit about my kids, especially my youngest son, Owen. Um, he's, he's, uh, he's eight years old, and um, he's learned that in Sunday school, um, and, and when you're in class, if there's a question posed, probably seven times out of ten, uh, you can throw out the answer, Jesus, and you're going to be right. Um, if kids have grown up in Sunday school, they, they, they learn that, right? It's either like Jesus or sin. You, you can cover most of the questions asked. And, and, uh, and you know, as I was reading this question, uh, I felt like I was in, in that second grade Sunday school class all over again. And, and my first thought was Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And as I, the more I thought about the, the struggles that the church has had and our nation has had, but specifically as the church has struggled to respond in the last year, year and a half, to some of the polarization that's been out there, whether it's regarding politics or race or you name it, um, I, I kept coming back to that answer of Jesus. You see, throughout church history, almost all of the church's problems, any kind of heresy, any kind of division or fighting, it usually had something to do with the person and work of Jesus Christ, taking our eyes off of Jesus in some way or distorting what the scriptures taught about the person and work of Jesus. Usually, our, our biggest problems in life come from taking our eyes off of Jesus. And uh, in this book of Hebrews, and in these first two verses, the writer says this. After, and if you know what has come before, he's just, he's just written this beautiful chapter, uh, chapter 11, on faith. And he's talked about men and women throughout the history of God's uh, working with God's people that, that have walked faithfully with God and trusted God. And so he says in chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As I formulated my response, I, I wrote down several, several thoughts here. The first one is that as believers, as we think about responding in our culture today to the unrest, the division, the polarization, the people just being so quick to respond with such intensity and often hatred. First thing I wrote down here is that as believers, we would do well to look unto the person of Jesus Christ. In these verses, he tells us, looking unto Jesus, that is, fixing our eyes, the steady gaze. It's a looking that does not abate. It doesn't turn to the right or to the left. It's a hard and fast gaze. I still remember one time 
when I, I may have told this story, but um, in, in my church, we had a group of us teenagers that would all sit together in one row uh, during the morning worship service. And uh, sometimes we got to talking a little bit, and maybe we're a little bit of a distraction to our pastor as he was preaching, but we tried to be pretty well behaved. Well, one, I remember one morning in particular, uh, his daughter, who was just a couple years ahead of me in school, uh, was sitting at the end of the row, and I don't know what was going on there, but she was chatting and laughing just a little bit too much. In the middle of the sermon, he stopped, and he just looked at her. He didn't have to say anything, but just set his gaze on her. And uh, I didn't really know what was happening because from my vantage point, I couldn't see. But uh, whatever he needed to do with that gaze, he got his point across. And, uh, and, and it was relatively quiet on that end of the pew, uh, the rest of the, the message. And if I recall, in the weeks following, it stuck. <laughs> As believers, we're called to fix our gaze upon Christ. And particularly... I just began to think about his character and his nature. You know, as we think about and put our, put our eyes upon who Jesus is, it really, it really helps bring into perspective the kind of things that God calls us to be and to do as his followers. I wrote down just a couple of attributes of God uh, that we see in the person and, and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, we could walk through... Um, a whole list and spend, spend Sunday after Sunday on this, but I wrote down, um, we need to think about the, the holiness of Jesus, the fact that Jesus was, as he walked this earth, fully man, fully God, was pure in all he did, fleeing sin, turning his back upon that which would distract him from his mission. The holiness of God is something that should, uh, that should shake us, when you read, like for example, Isaiah chapter 6, and you see Isaiah's vision of the holiness of God and his throne, and he hears the angels proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When you read Revelation and you realize that they're still singing the same song, all those years later, as John has his vision of heaven, you recognize that, that God is first and foremost a holy God. We would do well and, and I think our lives and our interaction with one another would be shaped appropriately as we reflect on God's love of holiness and God's nature of holiness. So often, especially when we can hide behind a screen or a phone of some kind, we can say things that we would never ever say out loud or to a person's face. God calls us to live as holy people. As we think about the person of Jesus, I also thought about his humility and gentleness. Over and over and over again, we encounter the gentleness of Christ. We must not confuse gentleness with weakness or some kind of uh, inferiority. Jesus was a gentle and a humble man. But it didn't take away from his boldness, his courage, his ability to speak the truth when necessary, speak the truth and say very hard words. He always spoke the truth, but sometimes it was very, very strong, especially the Pharisees. But Jesus was gentle. I mean, in the only passage where he describes his heart, in Matthew chapter 11, he says, I am gentle and lowly of heart. What a way to describe himself. He could have said all kinds of things. I am holy and mighty. I'm justice. My heart is, is powerful or whatever. But he, he described himself as lowly and gentle. As believers, we would remember well to... to live with each other in gentleness, to live in this world with gentleness and with a spirit of humility. Our Savior was not too proud to get down and wash his disciples' dirty, filthy feet. 
May we have the same heart of humility. We could also talk about the love of Christ. I love that as Jesus came across those who were hurting and struggling, um, places like Matthew 9.36 and Matthew 14, 14, and Luke 15, 32, and in other places, we see as he looks upon, upon those who are maybe sick or those who have been struggling in sin, uh, tax collectors, those who are outcast. Over and over, we catch this phrase, he was moved with compassion. This is such a beautiful phrase. The, the Greek word, um, one writer says, it speaks of a warm, compassionate response to need. No single English term does justice to it. Compassion, pity, sympathy, fellow feeling. They all convey part of it, but his heart went out is perhaps the most fully uh, emotional force of the underlying metaphor. This, his gut response, his instinct was for his heart to go out. I, I, I tell you what, so often that's, that does not describe me. When I see someone... Uh, who, who may look like they're struggling or destitute, may not look outwardly like they've got it together. So often my heart's response is first and foremost one of judgmentalism. I wonder what they did to get themselves there. I'm tempted, just like in the story of the Good Samaritan, that, that those, those first two that, that walked upon the other side of the road, walked around the injured man, I... I feel that temptation in my heart, if I'm honest. But that's not our Savior's response. His first response was always to move towards the hurting and the downcast. It didn't mean that he didn't deal with other issues that they may have had in their life, other addictions or struggles or sins. But his first response was to move toward them in love and compassion. As believers living in this time of Turmoil and tension, what if that was our first response? Rather than a witty zinger on Facebook, or whether, uh, rather, than, rather than a harsh word of rebuke to someone we disagree with, what if we sat down with them and moved toward them in compassion? That's how Jesus worked. I think another important aspect of his character to remember is his power. You know, we as an American church, and, and, and I'm, just, I'm speaking in broad generalities, but as you look over the trends in the last 20, 30 years, really even, even further back into that, into the 70s, we, we've had a mentality where if we put together the right kind of service and the right kind of programs and, and the right kind of activities, that we will uh, woo people into the body of Christ. And, and certainly many of those things have been beneficial and helpful. But the, the problem is, is that we can slip into a mentality where if, if I just orchestrate things just rightly, if I just play the right song at the right time, Dan and I have talked about this, uh, uh, if, if, you, if you say the right words at the right time, you can, you can almost be like uh, manipulative. You can almost be to the point where you're relying on your ability to put together the, the right program to accomplish the work of God. And it's almost like we don't even need the Holy Spirit. What do we need the power of God for? We've got talented or gifted people. We, we've got this, this, this great um, outreach idea. And if we do it just right, then people will get saved and the church will grow and God's kingdom will be built. 
And we can do it all without the power of God. <laughs> but I'm struck by how often Jesus went to his father in prayer. Does it, do you ever stop and think about Jesus and the Son of God praying? Like, why did he need to pray? He, he's God. He had infinite resources at his, at his disposal. The guy could calm seas, make the lame walk, preach a sermon, and go from there to the next ministry. Why did he need to call out to his father? I think it's actually a really deep theological question. But one of the answers, I think there are several, but one of them is I think he was modeling for us the absolute dependency that we must have upon the Father to accomplish anything worthwhile. Whether we're talking about loving our spouses or serving faithfully in a ministry for more than a week without quitting or, or loving that hard-to-love person at work or whatever it might be, we must have the power of God. Jesus spent several chapters in the Gospel of John explaining the importance of this comforter that would come when he departed and what this comforter would do. And this comforter, the Holy Spirit, dwells inside God's people for a number of reasons, but one of which is to equip us for the work of the ministry and, and to empower us. We must, believers, if we're going to accomplish anything worthwhile for the kingdom of God, it must be done in the power of God, for the glory of God. Not for our name's sake, and certainly not in our strength. I must go on. Um, secondly, I wrote down that we need to meditate upon the work of Christ. First, fix our gaze upon the person of Christ, and then take time to meditate upon the work of Christ. You know, so often when we... Uh, get frantic in life when we're stressed out, when we're overwhelmed, and, and especially when it comes to ministry. So often it's because we're not thinking about the work of um, Jesus upon the cross and that he's finished the work for us. The, the, the work is done. Yes, there is a work to be done, but it's not the work. And we can rest in his finished work upon the cross as we serve him. But sometimes we begin to think that there are, maybe we know that better than this theologically, but we start to live and act like there are other saviors out there. That if we can just get the right, maybe politicians in place, or the, the right um, programs going on in, in our community, our culture, or if... Uh, if, if this person is here in charge over here, we can begin to think of these, these, uh, these areas as our saviors. Maybe it's uh, having the right uh, amount of money in our, in our retirement account, having, making sure our, our family's all in good health and good working order, uh, everybody's getting along. Uh, all these things can be very nice and good, but we need to remember that none of these things will save us. None of these things will bring a lasting joy and rescue us from our sin. Jesus Christ is the one who saves us. One of the reasons the church has struggled so mightily is that we've forgotten to remember the gospel. We need to remember that we are sinners in desperate need of grace. Every single day we cast ourselves upon the grace of God because we don't measure up in and of ourselves. But Jesus has measured up for us. The gospel then shapes how we treat one another. 
as we look around and encounter the temptation to act unlovingly toward our fellow man, we recognize that we need God's grace and forgiveness every bit as much as they. Jesus demonstrated his love toward us when we were at our worst. Romans 5.8 says, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And yet frequently we forget just how deeply God has forgiven us as we interact with those with whom we disagree. When viewed through the lens of the gospel, others all of a sudden become real, live people made in the image of God. Who need to be touched by the saving kindness of God. Not enemies to be defeated on social media. Not politicians who need to be ripped down talk shows and and we sit around for coffee with other believers, but souls that need to be prayed for. Unbelievers who strongly differ with us on political or social issues are not foes, but potential future members of Christ's body. In short, the gospel reminds us to look at others the way that Jesus looks at us. Thinking rightly about the work of Christ helps us make sure the gospel of grace and the saving work of Jesus for lost sinners remains central in all we do. It's easy for us as Christians to lose focus of the gospel. Anything that takes the place of Jesus as an idol and a false savior, whether it's money or power or sex, even good causes, fighting against racism, abortion, human trafficking, sexual exploitation of women and children. They're all good and godly fights, but none of them are substitutes for the work of Christ. As we seek to endeavor to be involved in those causes, we must do so out of a reminder that Jesus has finished the work for us upon the cross. We don't seek to use those things as a way of bringing right standing with God but minister out of our right standing that we have through Jesus Christ. And then finally, I wrote down that as we think about um, how we can live rightly in the midst of the turmoil and the trials that we see as believers, we need to remember to practice the mission of Christ. If you've ever watched a movie or read a, a poorly written book that deviates from the plot and takes you on rabbit trails that you're like, what? What does this even have to do with, with the main part of the story? And never brings it abound in the end. You're like, what, what was the point of that? I don't understand where they were going. This just seemed like it was a meaningless, meaningless deviation here. The, the, the reminder that we so often as believers, we can be tempted to lose the plot. We get caught up in the here and now, what's immediately in front of us. And, and we forget what mission Jesus has called us to what he's truly about. These verses here in Hebrews 12, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The picture here is a runner who's focused on the task at hand. When you're in a race, if you've ever gone to a track meet or a cross-country meet, or watched a marathon or anything, you, you know that you don't, you don't see the, the runners like, you know, especially these marathons where they're running through city streets, you don't see a runner like pull over and like, hey, there's a, there's a 
supermarket here, or there's like a, a shopping center. I'm just going to go around and, and, you know, stop in for a minute and see if they have any good sales today, and then I'll get back in the race eventually. Like, there's a single-mindedness to their pursuit. There's a focus. They're not about to get distracted or taken to the side. As believers, we need to remember the same thing, that Jesus has called us on mission, and that we must not get distracted from the purpose he's called us to live. I wrote down just three Three components of this mission. Our mission is kingdom-centered. It's focused on what, what Jesus is building, not what I'm building. He said in Matthew 6.10 to pray for his kingdom to come, that his rule and his reign might, might be ushered into our lives and into our world. One writer says the kingdom of God is more than a theological concept or a distant reality. We experience the kingdom whenever and wherever God's redemptive reign overcomes our sinful resistance. It's present in the daily challenges and joys of life as well as those miraculous moments that leave us awestruck. And the evidence of God's kingdom is that it brings transformation to all of life, including the mundane. How about you this morning? Are you kingdom-centered? Are you focused on building what God is building? Are you focused on being a part of the spread of God's kingdom? Or is it about our own agenda, our own priorities? Secondly, um, as we think about uh, practicing the mission of Christ, we need to remember that that involves disciple-making. We've had a lot to say about this over the last year. But I love this uh, verse in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. It says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's the idea of making disciples. Passing on what you have learned to others so that they can train others as well. We don't want to be the kind of people where the, the, the story of the good news stops with us. Where something that needs to be passed down and handed down, ends with our generation. We're called to faithfully pass on the good news. We're, we're, we're called to faithfully train others in the faith. This is not simply the job of our teachers who are so faithfully over there teaching our young children right now. It's not just their job. It's not just the pastor's job. It's, it's all of us involved in the work of the ministry. I was talking to Pastor Steve this week, um, who has, as you know, served many years uh, in youth ministry. And I said, how, how many times over the years did you get blamed for how somebody's kid turned out? And he said, you would not believe how many people have come to me and have accused me of not doing enough to help their kid follow Jesus. And if, if only you had done more, Pastor, then my kid would not be involved in drugs. My kid would be in church today. Or You fill in the blank. I'll tell you what. Um, most pastors struggle with enough guilt as it is, um, the, the fear of not doing enough and feeling like there's always something more we can, we can do. That's already there. <laughs> um, so those kinds of conversations aren't helpful. And the reality is that they're not really true. Um, for, all, for so many of us as parents, um, just like with our kids' education, we, we want to farm out our kids' spiritual growth to the church, to somebody else. We're called as parents. 
first and foremost, to pour into our children. That's the first line of defense. That's why God told um, Moses in Deuteronomy 6, let this be a part of your rising up and when you walk along the way and when you lay down, when you sit down, every part of your day, infuse it with the passing on of the truth of God's word. But it's not just in the home. He's called us all to make disciples. That's Matthew 28, the Great Commission. We've talked about that many, many times. This is a call to all of us to be involved into making disciples. May we not lose focus of the mission to which we've been called. And then finally, as we think about the mission, it's, it's a unity-pursuing mission in this age of polarization. Let's, it's, listen, it's, it's not difficult to not get along. Okay? It's, it's not hard to find problems with people. Find things you disagree with them on. It's not hard to find things that grate on you uh, about this or that person. It's not difficult. You, you, don't, you don't find any commands in Scripture to like, hey, make sure you take some time to look for the faults in one another. Why? Well, because that's not what God wants us to do, but because that kind of come naturally. Like, we can do that. But the commands and the call are to live with one another in patience. Bear with one another in love. Ephesians 4 says, be eager, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Those are the commands that we need because God knows that there is a natural falling apart of relationships. In fact, this was so important to our Lord that the night before he went to the cross, this was his prayer from John 17. I do not ask for these only, speaking of the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. This is his prayer for us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus' prayer is that God's people would pursue a oneness, a supernatural, otherworldly oneness. And it's not just so that it can be nice when we get together and there's not all this tension or weirdness. That, that, that's a great side benefit, for sure. It's nice to not have to be awkward around someone. You know, you got those family gatherings, and you're like, man, last time we were together, we had some words, and we've never really dealt with it, and and, and you're not excited about that awkwardness. Well, it's, it's nice if you don't have that when you gather with God's people. But that's actually not the point of Jesus' prayer here. Did you hear it at the end? Why does he pray for oneness? So that, there's a purpose clause. I want them to be one so that what? That the world may believe that you have sent me. Listen, my brothers and sisters. Listen carefully, please. When we fight, especially when we take it online and put it all out there for the world to see, when we fight in ungodly ways, we'll disagree, that, that's normal. When we fight in ungodly ways, when we fight in public ways, we are doing damage to the mission that we have been called to. But when we walk in unity, when we walk in love, when we bear with each other's quirks, faults, we are preaching the gospel. We are proclaiming the good news of Jesus to a world that desperately needs to know about a God who 
heals and brings things together and fixes things. Fixes broken hearts, men's relationships. When we love one another, when we walk together in unity, we let the world know about a Savior who changes hearts. How do we do this? There's a lot we could say here. There's a lot that, a lot we could say by way of application. But I think the first place is that we need to just humble ourselves. If this year, this year has been a struggle for, this last well, 14, 15 months, it's been a struggle for everybody in some way or another. For some of us, deeply. And if part of that struggle has been the tension you felt in this world, fights and disagreements, and if, if part of that is there, I, I want to encourage you, exhort you this morning to take some time and humble yourself quietly before God and ask God, as David did in Psalm 139, would you search my heart? Listen, we're, we're all wrong some of the time. John said, if we say we have no sin, we're liars. We, we all blow it sometimes. It's sometime, I guarantee you, sometime during this past year, you have, you've blown it with somebody. Unless you have remained a hermit and completely not communicated with anybody for anything. And then you've, you've blown it because you haven't loved them at all. So, I mean, we've all blown it. We've all lost our temper with some. We've all been short. We've all snapped. We've all fought about things that we probably shouldn't have fought about. May we just take some time to humble our hearts and say, God, is there, is there stuff that I have not repented of? Is there stuff here that I have not brought before you, that I have not confessed before you? Is there, is there sin that I have spoken to other people and the way that I've treated them that I need to confess to you and go make right with them? Lord, Lord would you search my heart? And then secondly, I think that it would help us in this day and age. It would help this whole country. And as believers, let's, let's be the ones to start. Let's model what it means to listen to each other. James 1.19 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Boy, putting that verse into practice this year would have saved our nation from a lot of grief, and it most certainly would have saved a lot of churches and a lot of believers from so much grief. Even if at the end of the day we hear the person out and we still say, I, I, I think you're wrong still. How important it is, is it that we have just taken time to listen and truly hear that? I mean, how important is it? Like, think about just even your marriage relationship. When your spouse cuts you off with their rebuttal, when they've already got a reply, like you can already, you can almost see it when they've like edged on the front of their seat and their lips are already starting to move and they're like, their hands are going and they're like, all right, finish your words because they're meaningless, but I've got my reply here. I know what I'm going to say and I'm going to crush you. I'm going to blow you out of the water because I know I'm right and you're wrong. Like, do you feel listened to even if they wait till your words are done? Do you feel listened to? Uh, how important is it in, in life that you just, just get a chance to be heard? I mean, so often, that, that would solve so many of our problems. If someone was just able to get out what's on their mind and heart, 
and, you, and, and the person just didn't have a, a reply, a rebuttal, or a quick one-liner, a zinger, and they just say, I understand what you're saying. I hear where you're coming from. Thank you for sharing that with me. And just leave it at that. Even if you disagree with 90% of what they said, just thank you for sharing that with me. We just were listeners. That would change so much. And then finally, be willing to ask yourself difficult questions. Ask questions like, is the gospel central in all that I do? Have I, or have I, have I lost the plot? Have I forgotten what God has called me to do? Am I more passionate about these political issues over here than making disciples of Jesus Christ? Do I spend more time listening to, uh, to news talk shows with people arguing than I do praying or, or going and talking to my unsaved neighbor? These are just some, some challenging questions that could reveal where our priorities could be slightly or seriously askew. Does my mission line up with the mission of Jesus? Am I pursuing the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for in John 17? Am I taking time to devote myself to prayer? Am I looking to God and His power to do a miracle here? Am I spending my money on the kinds of things that build the kingdom of God? Am I loving all people well or those who I just naturally get along with? And when I do disagree with people, am I doing this in a God-honoring way? Does this help people want to draw closer to God or is this going to push someone further away from God? We're called as believers as we run this race to look unto Jesus. In the middle of the craziness that we find in our culture, and I, I, you know, I realize that things are quieting down with the pandemic and everything, but there are still a lot of tensions, whether it's, whether it's racial. There, there are still a lot of fights out there about church liberty, and, and there, there are a lot of things over there that are still very much hot-button issues. Let's ask ourselves as God's people, am I living in a way that is going to point people to Jesus in this time? Or am I responding in a way that pushes people away from Christ? May our hearts, our lives, our passion be all centered around Jesus as we run the race he's given us. May our eyes be fixed upon him. I want to just remind you that as we close in prayer here, um, that anybody who just would like to come up and pray, we're going to have some of our elders up front here and some of our members, we, we would just love to be able to pray with you. If there's anything that God's speaking to you about, uh, whether it has to do with what we've talked about this morning or maybe something else you need prayer for, we would love to take a few moments to pray with you here today. But let's, uh, let's bow in prayer right now. Our Father, help us to remember to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus. God, most of us are, are busy. That's, in fact, it seems like that's one of the most common ways that we describe ourselves anymore. Busy. And it's easy to get distracted. It's easy to, in our busyness to lose focus of what you've called us to do. God, I pray that as we allow the Spirit of God to search our hearts this week, that we would be humble enough and, and willing to repent as you convict us of sin. To deal with those issues immediately and cry out for your forgiveness. And may we live with others as we want you to deal with us. We love to receive your grace, oh God. We are so glad for your forgiveness and kindness to us.
may we extend that kind of grace toward others. Lord God, may we pursue unity. May we pursue that, 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 that bond of peace that Paul talks about. God, in all these things, may our eyes be fixed upon Jesus. Lord God, we thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit, that these are not things that we must do in and of ourselves. None of these are tasks or, or callings that we have to accomplish in our own power. But may you strengthen us according to your great might. Now the shepherd who has laid down his life for the sheep, who calls you by name, who never abandons his flock or allows his sheep to perish, may he preserve you in all the attacks of the enemy, hold you steady in all your sorrows, and keep you faithful in all your temptations. Amen. May God bless you this week as you serve him.